everybody. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, so much for two things. One, convening this stellar occasion year after year. It's one of the premier foreign policy events in a foreign policy town. Mm -hmm. And for all you do for enhancing understanding between the United States mm -hmm. and the Gulf. Thank you, Pat Mancino, for all you do to bring this together and, ma and make it happen. Uh, Your Royal Highness, it's always a pleasure to spend time uh, with you and such a distinguished group in the front row of ambassadors and friends and other colleagues and many students, I think, in the audience. A terrific panel will ensue also of great colleagues, David and Sarah and my former uh, colleague in, in arms in the region, Ambassador Chris Hensel. So I think that is a terrific, um, terrific lineup. Let's take a moment. I think the second thing I wanted to thank you about, though, Dr. Anthony, was starting with Yemen. It's not an obvious thing to do. And I'm deeply respectful of the number of visits that you have made to that country. Uh, it's more than I have and more than probably anybody else has in this room. But it shows your heart and your head uh, has been in this conflict and in its resolution. Um, so let's take a moment to look at where we are and what we think needs to happen next. You know, for the last seven months, Yemen has had the longest period of relative calm since the war began eight years ago. Strong diplomatic efforts between the United States and regional partners like Saudi Arabia, the Sultanate of Oman, and others have been instrumental in achieving a UN-mediated truce starting on April 2nd, extending it again in June, and extending it yet again in August. Because of that truce, the Yemeni people, men, women, and children, have received life-saving benefits, including the longest period of calm since the war began, a dramatic reduction in civilian casualties, five times more fuel, that includes cooking gas flowing into Yemen's northern ports, and commercial flights enabling over 32,000 Yemenis to seek medical care and reunite with loved ones abroad. These are the first commercial flights in and out of Sana'a since 2016. Unfortunately, the Houthis drove very high demands and chose not to renew the truce on October 2nd. So the question at this moment is what's next? What are the possibilities for a truce extension and even more importantly, a broader peace in Yemen? As the United States has said repeatedly, the future of Yemen lies in the hands of Yemenis. They are the ones who are gonna make the key decisions about the disposition of their country. We, alongside the international community, working closely with the United Nations, stand ready to support, we are supporting, a Yemeni-led inclusive peace process, as well as Yemen's recovery. We're deeply concerned that the UN-mediated truce in Yemen it expired last month without the parties reaching an agreement on an extension. Nevertheless, we're heartened that key elements of the truce continue to hold. Commercial flights are still flying from Sana'a to Amman. Fuel ships continue to move through Hudaydah port. But the situation remains fragile and a new expanded truce agreement is urgently needed. 
We remind the Houthis that the world is watching their actions. Actions like the October 21st Houthi attack aimed near a Greek-owned ship, an oil tanker, not only threatened to plunge Yemen into another pointless cycle of violence and suffering, <clears throat> such actions also send a negative signal to the international community about the Houthis' commitment to peace and to uphold the rule of law. The October 22nd, 21st attack also represented a serious threat to maritime security. This is, after all, one of the most heavily trafficked and used maritime arteries in the world, and also threatens Yemen's ability to export oil, the revenues of which remain a vital source of government income and a lifeline for the Yemeni people. The Houthis must accept that the only path forward to ending eight years of destructive war is through a negotiated, inclusive political settlement. There is no military solution to the Yemen conflict. There is nothing to be gained but further destruction and sadness through any return to fighting. And millions of Yemenis are calling for peace and justice. This is a critical moment. The Yemeni parties can either build on this unprecedented period of calm and transition to a durable ceasefire and an inclusive political process, or they choose to return to a war that is crippling the country and robbing its people of a future. To that end, I'm returning to the Gulf this evening, to Saudi Arabia and to the United Arab Emirates, to continue our support for intensive negotiations on a new agreement, to urge the parties to exercise restraint, and to cooperate with the UN to renew and expand the truce and build toward a durable ceasefire and a political <clears throat> process for the sake of all Yemenis. The UN proposal for an expanded agreement would have offered even greater tangible benefits for the Yemeni people, including providing salaries to tens of thousands of civil servants who have not been paid in years. These civil servants live in Houthi-controlled areas. They live in Yemen government-controlled areas. They need to be paid. Opening roads across the country, expanding the international commercial flights I spoke about, and easing the clearance process for fuel ships entering Hudaydah port. This is what's on the table already. Most importantly, the UN proposal would enable a comprehensive permanent ceasefire and an inclusive Yemeni-led political process that would durably end the war and finally answer Yemeni's calls for peace. Let's also remember that the UN-mediated truce facilitated humanitarian operations by enabling access to some communities and areas previously inaccessible due to the conflict. I'll leave it to my colleague Sarah from USAID to speak to the humanitarian situation and US efforts more specifically, but I will say that mitigating the humanitarian crisis remains a top US priority. President Biden asked that it be so. As Americans, I think we should be proud that the United States remains one of the largest single donors to the humanitarian response in Yemen. Before the end of fiscal year 2022, we provided an additional more than $92 million in humanitarian funding for Yemen, 
In 2022 alone, the United States has already provided over $1 billion in humanitarian assistance, bringing our total since the conflict began to nearly $5 million. Donors must continue to fund life-saving aid and fill the funding gaps that have already led to aid cuts for millions of Yemenis. While donor support is urgently needed to mitigate humanitarian suffering, it is also important to remember that the ultimate burden falls on the parties to the conflict. We've heard the Houthis stress the need to address humanitarian issues. The truth is that only a durable resolution to the conflict can reverse the dire humanitarian crisis facing Yemen. Years of instability and fighting have led to the deterioration of Yemen's economy and social services exacerbating the humanitarian crisis. If the Houthis truly care about the humanitarian situation, they must choose peace. Lastly, I'd be remiss if I did not mention important milestone the international community achieved last month. The United States is proud to have led efforts with the UN and the Netherlands to close the funding gap for the UN emergency operation to prevent a catastrophic oil spill from the Safar oil tanker off the coast of Yemen. The United States contributed $10 million for the UN Safar project. Our contribution stands alongside those of many countries represented here from a range of countries, organizations, individuals, even elementary school students across the globe, representing a broad coalition of partners that understands the importance of preventing an economic, environmental, and humanitarian catastrophe in the Red Sea. It's a catastrophe that would worsen the humanitarian situation for millions of Yemenis. Let me conclude with a couple of points. U.S. diplomacy in support of U.N.-led efforts will continue energetically and unabated. Let's keep Yemen in the forefront here. There's a lot competing with this crisis, but we want Yemen to stay in a very important position in world affairs. We remain committed to supporting efforts to renew and expand the UN-mediated truce as it represents the best opportunity Yemen has had for peace since this conflict began. At this critical time, we urge the Houthis to listen to the calls from the Yemeni people, as well as the overwhelming consensus from the international community, from the region, the Gulf region, and choose peace. And I want to leave you on a positive note, this conflict can be resolved, and it can be resolved now in the coming period of time. There is a very strong international consensus to put international might and dollars and diplomacy into ending this conflict. And there are serious discussions going on right now among the parties looking at ways to end the conflict. I think with the United States support and that of our regional friends and partners, and with the help, of course, and the guidance of the Yemeni people, we can get there. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Tim. Uh, there you have as good an example as, as anyone could ask or hope for as a taxpayer or an interested foreign affairs observer, analyst, or practitioner. Uh, he's the finest of the finest, the best of the best. And it shows how through thick and thin, ups and downs, roller coaster moments in the overall relationship between the United States and this particular region uh, that we have such stalwart uh, career diplomats uh, who do not lose sight of the focus of America's strategic interest and in in mission in, in the region. And that is a very competitive one uh, being intruded upon all the time by those who would trade places with us in a millisecond. But to help us further unravel some of the myths and the misunderstandings, the misinformation, the disinformation about uh, pressing uh, legitimate uh, needs, legitimate concerns, legitimate interests, legitimate goals. Uh, we have uh, Colonel retired Professor David DeRoche, who's at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies, which is the think tank for the Department of Defense at, at, at Pentagon. Uh, he's a parachutist. He's had more than 100 jumps. Uh, he's a student uh, and beneficiary of King's College London and the School of Oriental and African Studies, which uh, trains people unlike uh, the United States trains our people, and for a longer period of time, almost by a generation, the British have had such institutions. Uh, he's a graduate of, of both of these there. He's also a non-resident uh, fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, and he is a, a National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations Senior Fellow on Defense Issues, Colonel David DeRoche. Yeah. Thank you. It's an honor to be here um, uh, on, on such a prestigious panel. If you want to get a cup of coffee, this is the time to do it. Uh, I'd like to thank the distinguished guests for being here, and I particularly have to uh, single out Prince Turkey. Um, you know, you sat through one of my talks last year, the introductory talk at the King Faisal Center after COVID, and so to have to sit through two of these in one year, the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights is investigating. And then finally, um, uh, there are three NISA interns here, uh, Eli, Gabby, and Chris. We're only allowed to keep them until December, so um, raise your hands if you're looking for talent. These three will be available in December. We're done that. I have to, yeah, so let's hear it for them. I do not speak for the United States government. I'm going to speak very rapidly uh, because uh, there are, uh, you know, great talent here. I'm going to talk about developments in warfare that may uh, compound or or the problem and confuse a possible solution. So the first question is, how does Iran fight? Uh, if you scan that QR code, you'll uh, get a download to a short pamphlet I wrote for the Gulf States Institute. Uh, that's a power move. This is what it looks like if you get it, and I must uh, uh, pay homage 
here to people who, uh, as not an Iranian expert, people who I draw on heavily. First off, the works of the think tank Carpo Bon, particularly um, Christine Marie Hines and Adnan Tabatabai, uh, the independent scholar uh, Nigar Mortazavi, uh, Barbara Slavin, of course, here in Washington, and Sarah Bazubandi in Berlin. Um, so the first thing is Iran seeks disruption, not dominance. Uh, people have asked me for years if the uh, Iranian uh, Navy can defeat the U.S. Navy in the Strait of Hormuz, and the answer is they cannot, but that's not their aim. Their aim is to attack civilian shipping and raise maritime insurance rates. They don't have to defeat the U.S. Navy. They have to make insurance clerks in London nervous. Uh, the second thing is that they do rely on proxy attacks, and it's important to note here that there is a scale of control with proxies. Um, Iran did not create the Houthis, Iran did not create the Houthi movement, and the Houthi movement seized control of Sana'a without significant support from Iran. If Iran ceases its support for the Houthi movement, the Houthi movement will not give up and go away. But that being said, they do fall under the broad umbrella of proxies, albeit a loosely controlled one. And they aim to disrupt shipping and take hostages. These are all part of this pattern of disruption, so if you read that pamphlet, you can kind of get more on that. Of course, the primary way that they're able to project force and what differs, uh, what makes Yemen different from, say, the U.S. situation along the Mexican border in 1916-1917, where having failed to achieve all of our strategic aims, not capturing Pancho Villa, not restoring governance in Mexico, having suffered the loss of U.S. lives in Columbus, New Mexico, and having the constant threat of border incursions by a hostile enemy that had military technology equal to that of the United States Army, we simply said, okay, we're going to go away, and uh, if something happens, you know, we have soldiers along the border now. Um, the problem is that now Iranian ballistic and cruise missiles have been exported in significant numbers to uh, uh, the Houthis, and I can't get the point here, but the one to look at, the Qiyam missile, which is right in the middle, that was what was fired at uh, Riyadh International Airport in 2017, but the Zulfagar is uh, turning out to be sort of the missile of choice. Uh, Iran exports these, sometimes in segments, sometimes in components, and they're either welded together in Yemen or assembled, and uh, the Zulfagar particularly now has a hyper-accurate mode that allows it to Thanks. achieve targets within 10 meters. This is me with the wreckage of the Qiyam missile, uh, uh, they call it Burkhan, but it's a Qiyam, and you can see the middle picture is the um, Qiyam in uh, Houthi leverage. The right is the Qiyam at the uh, uh, arms show in Tehran. Uh, Zulfagar, of course, is the one that we're doing here, and this is these are both Iranian models of that. But this missile is extremely accurate, and accuracy is more important than payload, and is almost as important as distance. And that is a threat because it can accurately hit any target within a range of about 700 kilometers, which includes Riyadh. Here you see the range of the missiles and the one to look at is the red one, Zulfagar. So this is from Iran, but as you can see, even from Iran, they can hit as far as Riyadh. Uh, why is accuracy important? Accuracy is measured in what's called circular error probability. So you have the circle here. Um, if 50% of the missiles fall within a circle, that's the circular error probability. So the um, standard Iranian missile in 2003, the Shahab, had a circular error probability of three kilometers. Half the missiles would not fall within three kilometers of the intended target. What we're seeing with the Qiyam uh, uh, is probably 100 meters of circular error probability, but with the Zulfagar, we think it's 10 meters, and I'm sorry, I advanced too quickly. The second advantage we've seen is the development of solid rockets, and there are indications that Iran has 
taught Hezbollah how to produce solid rocket fuel. Um, we have not seen it yet in Yemen, at least in um, open source, and I only look at open source because I don't speak for the Department of Defense, as my slides say. But um, uh, a solid rocket motor is much easier to maintain, much easier to move around. If you have a liquid rocket motor, you have to have tankers that travel around, and there's an intelligent signature. So with a solid rocket motor, uh, it's very hard for countries that are reliant on aerial observation, like the United States and its partners, to include Saudi Arabia and the UAE. It's very hard to determine where these rockets are, and the requirement for maintenance is much less. So that is a uh, combat capability improvement, which again complicates efforts to um, produce a military solution to the problem. Of course, there's drones. This is the Abu Bil Qasaf drone. It was captured by the Emirati forces. And uh, basically what I want to point out to you is that there's really three parts of the drone. The motor, which is a model airplane drone, which is produced either in China or in the West. And according to the UN panel of experts, uh, exported to China through various uh, uh, shell companies and then re-exported to Iran and then turns up on the battlefield in Yemen. And then the electronics up front, which again are mostly Western, although some components are now Iranian made. And then the body of itself is just made out of fiberglass. If you can make a surfboard, you can pretty much make a drone body. So um, in the past, these had to be produced in uh, relatively advanced engineering environment like that of the Revolutionary Guards in Tehran. But the technology is so simple and so easy that if the Houthis are not able to make these now on a sustainable basis, they will be within three years. Um, the, of course, the current one, the Shahid-136, these were the drones that were fired from Iran or Iranian-controlled Iraq at the uh, Abqaiq refinery in 2019. Uh, they are uh, appearing in the Yemeni battlefield, and they've been exported to the Russian army, where they're rechristened the Garand and are, are fired uh, at Ukrainian electricity infrastructure, the same as the Russians did in Syria, uh, destroying the civilian infrastructure in order to try to target the will to resist. What's significant about these is people say, well, Iranian sanctions haven't worked, but you look at the drone, it doesn't have any kind of active guidance. There's no camera on it, and the reason for that is because under the sanctions regime, Iran cannot acquire these. So these are either inertially guided, they're fired at a specific target, or they are um, uh, using GPS. Uh, which means that they're of limited utility against fixed target or against mobile targets and military targets. Uh, this shows the range of drone strikes that are possible from Houthis, and again, this complicates the situation because unlike the United States in 1917, where we just say, okay, we'll put 15,000 soldiers on the border of New Mexico and let Pancho Villa play himself out in Mexico, now Pancho Villa has the ability to attack Denver. And uh, that's, that would have been a much more difficult situation, uh, much more difficult decision for the United States in 1917 to just let Mexico ferment. The Saudis don't have that luxury. Uh, these are some other drones that were attacked, but uh, we've got better people to hear from, so I'll leave the pictures for you. And then, of course, the coalition, uh, which was initially in there. Um, what I want to point out here is the fact that Technology is technology, but what we're learning from the war in Ukraine, and I'll talk about this later on this afternoon, is that the intangibles that don't show up on a spreadsheet, uh, you know, it's easy to, to tally up numbers of aircraft, drones, missiles, artillery. Uh, what doesn't show up on a spreadsheet are things like training and morale. And uh, the idea that you can outsource uh, your ground forces uh, has proven to be um, flawed in Yemen and has proven to be a critical mistake on behalf of the Russian forces. Morale and training among the 
the Ukrainian forces is superior and has allowed the Ukrainian forces uh, to completely upset the spreadsheet, to, to uh, fight to a standstill in some areas and a defeat in other areas, a far superior military force on the spreadsheet. One of my rules in government is that the um, vital but intangible is always trumped by the trivial but measurable, and we're seeing this play out in the ground force effort by the coalition in Yemen and in the Ukrainian success against Russian forces. Uh, and of course, uh, the idea of conquering a land by air with airstrikes, uh, as I said at a National Council uh, event uh, the day after the war started, um, unfortunately you can fly over a land, you can bomb it from the air, you can shell it into oblivion, but unless you occupy it the way the Roman legions did with soldiers on the ground. You can never say that you have controlled it. That's from T.R. Fehrenbach, This Kind of War, a study of the U.S. failure in the Korean War, uh, but it remains true today. And with that, I will wait for your questions. Thank you for your patience. At this point, we'd like our session uh, moderator, uh, Dr. Abdurrahman Al-Ariani, to come forward. Uh, we want to thank both, uh, uh, just a, a special envoy, Lander King, for coming. I know he's getting ready for his visit uh, to the region. So, just, Tim, just a round of applause for him. Thank you for what you're doing. And now we'll turn the program back over to Dr. John Duke Anthony uh, and uh, Dr. Anthony. You uh, get a bird's eye view of how complex some of these issues are. <clears throat> and when um, you hear calls for, let's uh, cease America's uh, arms transfers or arms uh, sales uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, the most prominent, dominant neighbor of, of Yemen, uh, which has had forces uh, that have intruded into Saudi Arabian airspace, land space, sea space. Uh, empathy is called for here. Not so much sympathy, antipathy, or apathy, but empathy to put ourselves in the shoes of soul situations of uh, people other than ourselves and try to be clinical and detached and as objective as possible of uh, the analogy drawn with, between Mexico and the United States uh, in 1916-1970 is, is apt uh, because uh, we had no alternative, we had no options other than to, as our Constitution requires, mandates, dictates, to defend the interests, the legitimate needs, concerns, and goals and objectives of the American people along our borders and in our airspace and in our, our coastal territories as well. And so that was apt. Um, Saudi Arabia has very few uh, options other than to defend its borders and its people, and its people demand that. Uh, and they're not demanding anything excessive other than their legitimate needs, their legitimate rights, their legitimate interests, their legitimate goals and objectives, to live in peace, but first and foremost to live in security. People use the word security and stability almost interchangeably. They're not. They're dependent upon one another. They're linked to one another there. But if you don't have security, you don't have a chance for stability. You must have security before anything and all else. 
when any of us walk out of our homes or our offices, wherever we go, uh, the fact that we don't have to look over our shoulders or so-called pack heat uh, to defend ourselves because we are secure and we know we are secure as a people, as a nation. And this is absolutely essential for stability. If you don't have security, you don't have stability. If you don't have stability, you cannot plan. You cannot predict, you cannot anticipate with any degree of expected effectiveness there. So security first and foremost, and this is the Saudi Arabian component of the Yemen situation, as it is the Oman component. Oman is Yemen's uh, eastern neighbor and uh, also has the same geostrategic, geological, geopolitical, geomilitary uh, concerns about its western neighbor uh, there and is no less concerned about what the policies are, American policies, American-led coalition policies, Saudi Arabia's policies, the Gulf Cooperation Council policies, and those across the Red Sea from Yemen having to do with the maritime aspects that uh, Dave DeRoche and Tim made reference to of how so much of the traffic that comes out of the uh, Arabian Gulf turns right. Not all of it goes to Asia, to India, to China, to South Korea, to Japan, and elsewhere. A lot of it, a third of it at least, turns and goes through the waters of Oman, through the waters of Yemen, up through the Red Sea, en route to markets in Western Europe, the Mediterranean, and beyond. Um, and to help us understand further uh, these dimensions that are seldom reported upon in that medium, and when and if they are, are oftentimes lacking as much as they are, including that which we need to know, must know, if we're to have responsible policies, responsible positions, responsible attitudes, responsible actions. To help us do this, we have uh, Abdul Rahman al-Iriani. Anyone who's a Yemen specialist knows that the al-Iriani family from Iran in Yemen. Uh, it's almost like, and I don't want him to feel embarrassed, but it's almost like the Rockefellers or the Fords or the Carnegies. <laughs> in other words, individuals who have been part of the glue, the adhesive, uh, that which has uh, lubricated uh, what counts for security and stability in Yemen. Uh, there's seldom been a time of extended peace and security and stability in Yemen where a member of the El Iriani family and clan has not been a member of the of the cabinet helping to shape and defend its country's legitimate needs, concerns, rights, and aspirations. Mr. El Iriani. Well, good morning. Um, that, that, that was a very generous introduction, uh, Dr. Anthony, uh, truly appreciated. And of course, Pat, you know, I'm working on, uh, on getting my PhD and hopefully I'll be there. Uh, I'm on the, you know, academic track. So, but thank you for uh, giving me that encouragement by referring me to doctor. Um, so, um, you know, we're having uh, today's discussion on Yemen and generally this event, while um, there are uh, ongoing 
regional and developments, and these are troubling uh, regional and, and global developments happening around us. So first we have the uh, Ukrainian invasion uh, of Russia, uh, Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, and so that's been, um, this has not only caused a, a, a humanitarian catastrophe in uh, Ukraine, but it has um, aggravated fragilities, humanitarian and, and security fragilities, not only uh, in many parts of the world, but uh, more specifically in the Middle East and, and in Yemen. And second, uh, U.S.-Saudi relations are clearly under stress. Um, the deterioration of the U.S.-Saudi relations um, could very well undermine the coordination, the close coordination of, of these both of these countries on many files. Um, more specifically, of course, on the on the Yemeni file. <coughs> and the third um, uh, issue is, is this is an evolving story. Yesterday night, we uh, we've heard in the news of an uncovering uh, plot by the Iranians to target Saudi uh, energy infrastructure. And this, of course, complicates further, um, you know, efforts to renew and extend, renew and expand uh, Yemen's truce. So, um, you know, these are the three uh, ongoing challenges. And, um, you know, I, I hope, and we're very fortunate to have remarkable panelists with us today. Um, and let me give uh, a very quick uh, introduction of our um, two panelists that we'll be um, conversing with. Uh, and of course, you can refer to uh, the literature for a full bio. So today we have Miss uh, Sarah Charles. And Ms. Sarah Charles is the um, uh, is the assistant to the administrator for USAID's Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance. Uh, she oversees USAID's global disaster assistance. Uh, she has an impressive career in, um, uh, in, 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 she has an impressive career in uh, many roles that, that she has undertaken at the U.S. government. Uh, she previously worked uh, at the White House, at the NSC, and um, she had a brief stunt with the International Relief uh, Committee. Um, and so it's really a pleasure to have her today to discuss um, <coughs> USA's intervention uh, in Yemen and its uh, humanitarian work uh, there. And of course, we have Ambassador Christopher, Christopher Hensel, um, he has an impressive um, career at the U.S. State Department, having um, worked at, for the State Department for nearly, uh, for over three decades. Uh, he's the former ambassador to Yemen uh, from May 2019 until May 2021, and was the charge d'affaires in Saudi Arabia from June 2017 until, uh, until April uh, 2019. And he has served as a diplomat in many countries around the world, including in our region, uh, Tunisia, Jordan, and Bahrain. And of course, he has served um, in Yemen, too, um, I believe it was in 1997 right. uh, until 1999. So, um, please um, give them a, a warm uh, round of uh, applause. So, it's really a pleasure to have them. And so, I'll uh, ask uh, the panelists to uh, go ahead and provide their initial remarks. Uh, and we could start with Sarah uh, and then with Ambassador Hensel. Uh, you can come to the uh, podium. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, and thank you to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. I spent the last administration working for the International Rescue Committee um, in their Washington office on M Street, right across the hall from the council, so I feel like I'm, I'm back among neighbors here and, and very pleased to be here. 
I also, I hope um, Special Envoy Linder King can hear me as he's making his way um, out of the Ronald Reagan building and back to the State Department. Um, but I really want to thank him and UN Special Envoy Grunberg for their relentless efforts to seek a peaceful resolution to the conflict in Yemen. We really welcome the commitment from the Republic of Yemen government and regional partners to bring peace and relief to Yemen. Um, but I think we've seen from the Special Envoy Envoy's relentless dedication to this cause, um, the real difference that diplomacy and that diplomats matter um, when, they're, when they're focused on, on a challenge. As we urgently work towards a political solution, the United States is committed to doing everything that we can to reach the women, children, and men affected by the crisis in Yemen. Uh, head and heart seems to be a theme of today's panel. I first worked in Yemen nearly 13 years ago, and the people of Yemen remain in my head and heart. The six-month UN-mediated truce has provided a glimmer of hope to the Yemeni people. It's also made clear that real, sustained change can only be achieved with a permanent ceasefire. As Tim mentioned, the truce contributed to improved overall freedom of movement and the significant decrease in civilian injuries and deaths from airstrikes, with both dropping more than 50% between March and the start of the truce in April. Incidences remained at their lowest point over a year throughout the truce period. With the reopening of Sana's airport to commercial flights, more than 32,000 Yemenis were able to travel to see loved ones and seek medical care. The increase of fuel entering Hudaydah meant that hospitals and businesses could maintain critical public services in many cases for the first time in years. While insecurity and interference in northern Yemen continue to be a major obstacle, many humanitarian partners were better able to conduct assessments and provide aid in rural areas that had previously been inaccessible. Despite the temporary reprieve that the truce provided, Humanitarian needs continue to grow at an alarming rate. As this group knows well, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen remains one of the worst in the world. Nearly 75% of the population requires humanitarian assistance to meet just basic needs. 19 million Yemenis are in need of food assistance, and more than 2 million young children face deadly malnutrition. 2 million children. The far-reaching impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine have exacerbated <clears throat> what was already a dire food insecurity crisis. 90% of Yemen's food must be imported, and Ukraine and Russia account for nearly half of Yemen's wheat imports. Long-term interruptions to the flow of grain have impacted global prices at a time when food affordability is already, driving, is already a driving force of Yemen's food insecurity. Even prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the depreciation of the Yemeni rial had pushed food prices to their highest level since 2015. With scarce livelihood options, families across Yemen <clears throat> simply don't have purchasing power to meet basic needs. We remain at a dangerous tipping point as the threat of renewed conflict will only further strain an already stretched humanitarian operation. The UN's humanitarian appeal for Yemen is only 48% funded. And the United States has provided more than a billion this year alone, which accounts for more than half of all contributions made by all donors. Tim said we're among the top donor. We are the top donor by far. Funding shortfalls have forced humanitarian partners to close 
or reduce critical partners, including cuts to food assistance rations for millions of vulnerable Yemenis, this at a time when, again, need is growing. The international community, particularly donors in the region, have the resources and responsibility to step up and keep these life-saving programs going. It cannot be overstated that as dire as the situation is, humanitarian assistance is saving lives. Through our UN and NGO partners, including many local Yemeni partners, we're responding to urgent needs throughout the entire country. Together we provide emergency food and cash assistance, work to prevent and treat malnutrition, distribute hygiene and shelter supplies to displaced families, rehabilitate water tanks and pipes, and help parents earn an income to rebuild their livelihoods. Our response focuses heavily on the provision of emergency food assistance, and every month, food provided by the United States reaches 13 million vulnerable people in Yemen. 13 million people. In April, the United States took the extraordinary step to draw down the full balance of something called the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust support emer to support emergency food assistance activities in six countries, countries experiencing food insecurity, including notably Yemen. This helped provide wheat, vegetable oil, and specialized ready-to-use therapeutic food for the treatment of severe malnutrition in Yemen. In recent weeks, the US, USAID has been able to support the movement of grain from Ukraine as part of the Black Sea Initiative to address the global food security crisis. We supported the World Food Program to provide more than 37,000 metric tons of wheat procured from Ukraine, moved through the Black Sea ports to reach 2.1 million people in Yemen facing acute food insecurity. This, this initiative um, is, is under threat with the Russians pulling out um, in the last week or so, but we understand as of this morning there's a, a glimmer of hope for renewal of that deal that allows critical, um, critical food supplies to move from Ukraine to the rest of the world and in particular to the Middle East region. When communities face crisis levels of acute food insecurity, it not only impacts the amount of food that they can eat, but it affects the health of their families the nutrition status of their children, and it changes the type of protection risks that women and girls face. At its core, Yemen is a protection crisis. Women lack access to essential reproductive health services and face alarming rates of gender-based violence. In spite of limited funding and obstruction by authorities, brave partners such as the UN Population Fund continue to reach women with psychosocial support and gender-based violence prevention services. We're extremely concerned about the spread of Maharam throughout Yemen, but particularly in the north. Yemeni women are integral to an inclusive humanitarian response that fully attends to the needs of women, girls, and female-headed households. All humanitarian staff, including female humanitarian staff, must be able to operate independently and without restrictions to their movements. Our partners work tirelessly and at great personal risk to deliver assistance. Maintaining their safety and unhindered access to people in need is critical. In recent months, we've seen a dangerous escalation in threats, intimidation, and violence directed at humanitarian relief actors. There were more security incidents against humanitarian personnel during the first six months of 2022 than all of 2021 combined. Much of this has been fueled through a coordinated misinformation campaign spread through social media. This dangerous rhetoric undermines the provision of life-saving assistance to those that need it most. With our humanitarian partners and other donors, we continue to advocate for unimpeded and sustained access to people in need across the entire country. 
Humanitarian assistance is saving lives in Yemen, but aid, of course, will not solve the root cause of the crisis. The truce demonstrated that peace is, in fact, within reach, but only if all parties operate in good faith for the good of Yemen and the good of the Yemeni people. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and look forward to your questions. Good morning, uh, uh, Your Royal Highness, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you very much for uh, uh, coming here to, to hear our discussion. Especially thank you, Dr. Anthony, for giving me a chance to participate. I'm looking forward very much to the, uh, the panel, so I'll, I'll keep my remarks right now pretty brief. Uh, first of all, a disclaimer to make clear, uh, I am no longer an employee of the federal government, so I enjoy a certain liberty to speak uh, that maybe some of my former colleagues uh, still don't have. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, so uh, just briefly, uh, first, I'd, and this may sound like it's too obvious to even mention, but um, I do want to make clear up front that my understanding my view of the situation. Um, our, the United States' approach to Yemen is limited by a framework uh, that, like it or not, we are, we are uh, trapped inside. Um, when you look at uh, U.S. policy toward the region, you've got sort of the top-level policy, which is the U.S. political class's commitment to Israel. Um, that is something that is uh, not open to challenge in Washington, um, and many other things flow from it. Um, one of those things is uh, a US, uh, the U.S. views itself as obliged to um, contain or at least confront Iran when it's advancing somewhere in the region, if not even many aspire to, to roll things back. Um, also flowing from these things, you have uh, the U.S. commitments to its relationship with Saudi Arabia, um, something which, as we know, is, is uh, the subject of a lot of discussion in Washington, but I think the other factors at the higher level will eventually bring the U.S. back into its traditional approach. At the bottom of all these priorities, um, there is Yemen. Um, Yemen is a beautiful country, um, and I, I have a great affection for it, but from the point of view of U.S. policy, what we do in Yemen is, is contained or, or limited by these, these higher priorities. So they need to be taken as givens uh, when we're discussing uh, Yemen. Uh, the U.S. direct security or economic uh, interests in Yemen are limited. Um, the U.S. does have a need to see that al-Qaeda and ISIS terrorists there are contained. Uh, our partners in the region are doing well at that. We're doing well at that when I left uh, one year ago, and I believe they still are. Um, the U.S. also has a direct interest in the free flow of commerce through the Bab al-Mandeb. Uh, despite the Houthis' occasional attacks on ships in the Bab al-Mandeb, I believe this is a manageable problem and would be so even in a worst-case scenario in which the Houthis are, are permanently established uh, in northern Yemen with uh, advanced Iranian weaponry. But aside from those two points, that's pretty much the extent of direct U.S. interests. Um, 
but as I said, our, our policy in Yemen is driven by these higher level uh, policy uh, considerations. Um, we have a very important relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and Saudi Arabia, of course, does have extremely important uh, security interests in Yemen. Um, so, in other words, the U.S. in reality lacks the freedom to simply walk away from Yemen um, or to um, even, you know, you hear talk about cutting off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. I feel that that is uh, very unlikely to actually happen. Uh, and if it did, it would um, impact these higher level considerations and I think you'd quickly see Washington poli policymakers trying to walk things back. Wow. Um, I've been speaking, of course, of uh, security and economic interests, but there's, of course, the very important humanitarian factor. Uh, despite our minimal direct security interests in Yemen, Many Americans and other Westerners are very concerned uh, whenever the humanitarian situation in Yemen makes news, and they're also concerned with reports of civilian casualties. Um, I, our Congress has been very generous with funding for humanitarian assistance to Yemen, and I think that's something Americans should be proud of. Unfortunately, though, this, is also, this also contributes to um, a dynamic in the conflict that uh, unfortunately gives the Houthis an advantage. Um, the U.S. and other Western governments have almost no direct, almost no leverage of any kind over the Houthis. Uh, Western publics, uh, dismayed by the humanitarian situation, um, pressure their governments. Uh, we see this in our, our Congress here. Uh, they put pressure on uh, Western governments to do something, anything, uh, about the Yemen conflict, even when that is uh, sometimes not particularly uh, productive. So what happens? Time and time again, the U.S. Uh, ends up putting pressure on the party over which we do have some leverage, which is the Saudi-led coalition. For example, it was Western pressure which led to the Stockholm deal, which locked in a Houthi control of the port of Hodeidah. Uh, it was Western pressure that committed the Emiratis to commit in June 19 to withdraw almost all of their forces from Yemen. We've seen the pressure that was put on the Saudis by the outgoing Obama administration in 2016 over Yemen. Um, at the, at the, in the very last weeks of the administration, uh, they cut off supplies of, uh, of surface-to-ground missiles. Um, Though that was quickly reversed by the Trump administration. But it was something that the Obama uh, administration, I think they did this uh, in order to feel good about themselves, knowing that it really wouldn't uh, make much difference, and having not done it over the previous eight years. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Uh, many of these same policymakers came back into office with the Biden administration in 2021. One of the Biden administration's first acts was to announce a cutback in military cooperation with the Saudis because of Yemen and to adopt a critical tone toward uh, the Saudi government and toward Mohammed bin Salman. This approach was never particularly realistic or sustainable and uh, predictably it collided with reality this past summer when President Biden had to walk back much of his, uh, this approach in what I view as a humiliating way uh, when he uh, visited Riyadh to ask for more oil, despite his previous statements. 
I mention all this not because I'm particularly fond of the Saudi-led coalition's intervention in Yemen or its conduct of the war. I bring this up only because proposals for a settlement in Yemen sometimes ignore these basic dynamics or the pr proposals presuppose a power-sharing agreement the, between the, the Houthis and the Saudi-backed Yemeni government. This has not been a realistic prospect for years, probably since the Kuwait talks in 2016. Unfortunately, the Houthis are at present too strong to be a junior or even equal partner in a power-sharing agreement. The Houthis have already achieved many of their goals, control over the most populous and productive parts of the country, access to the world through Sana'a Airport and the Port of Hodeidah, and an end to the Saudi use of their air power. <clears throat> the Houthis are now a de facto state. I hope the ceasefire can be formally agreed again, or even just continue de facto, uh, even though the Houthis will surely use each uh, renewal of any ceasefire to extract more concessions. They are in a very good position because they know Western publics will condemn the Saudis if the airport is closed again, or if hostilities resume, no matter who is really at fault. It seems to me that a resumption of coalition military pressure, uh, significant military pressure, is off the table for now, and that means the Houthis uh, will, will see no need to make concessions. I believe the Houthis are committed to eventually ruling all of Yemen. They may be willing to wait out the present Yemeni government, they may decide for military reasons they need a breather, uh, or they may decide to re resume open war. I suspect the Saudi leadership knows that they are now in a no-win situation. They will probably have to endure the status quo and hope that in the long run, the Iranian role in Yemen can be eroded somehow. But I don't see how that happens in the near term. But at least if there is a de facto ceasefire in place, I think the humanitarian benefit um, makes it worthwhile to us. What's the best way ahead? The U.S. should continue encouraging the parties to maintain the ceasefire or to renew it, the de facto ceasefire. It would be wonderful if Yemen were introduced uh, as a topic of any conversations with Iran that the U.S. or the Saudis are having, though I suspect Yemen is among the last cards the Iranians would be willing to give up in any negotiations. The United States should avoid the temptation to chase after the Houthis on our own, and we should incur continue to encourage the Saudis in their direct engagement with the Houthis and support the Saudis in that. After all, in the end, only the Saudis can offer the monetary incentives that will be needed to persuade the Houthis to compromise. And the U.S. and others will probably need to continue their large donations to the humanitarian efforts for the foreseeable future. So again, thank you very much, uh, and I look forward to uh, discussing this with the panel and, uh, and with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Hensel, for your remarks, and of course, uh, uh, truly appreciate Sarah's for her remarks as well. Um, you know, I'm trying to, we're trying to make this panel uh, productive and as successful as possible, and we cannot do this without you, the audience. So uh, please feel free to, uh, you know, use note cards, and they're available with the ushers. If you see the ushers on the on the sides of the. Um, uh, on these sides here, you could ask for one, and you could write down your questions, and feel free 
um, so do not hesitate. Um, so, and of course, raise your hands when when you're uh, when when you have that note card uh, completed uh, to be picked up. So we're really grateful uh, to have um, both uh, you know Sarah and Chris. Miss um, um, Charles, you know she mentioned you mentioned a number of times that you've known Yemen for a while, and Yemen knows very well USAID. Um, USAID started working in Yemen in the 60s, and so we go way back. Um, there were so many projects, bridges built, uh, projects implemented. And so there was so much goodwill. Uh, and now with the lack of uh, direct presence of, uh, of the US government uh, in, in Yemen, it's been a bit of a challenge, isn't it, to operate on the, in the country. So just for, uh, for our audience, just to better understand, given that US is the largest um, humanitarian donor to Yemen, how is USAID oper operationalizing its, uh, uh, you know, its projects in Yemen, essentially? Yeah, and I, sh I should say when I when I first worked in in Yemen, it was when we had a large USAID right. mission in, in Sana, and we could uh, travel throughout the country. Um, as as you said, many Yemenis knew USAID, knew their investments there. For some time now, we've had to operate in a in a non-presence environment because of the the threats specifically on the the U.S. embassy um, in Sana'a, and we we work through and with non-governmental partners, uh, many reputable um, longtime partners in Yemen, as well as UN agencies. Um, but we do we do operate at a bit of a remove these these days. We rely on our partners um, for their connectivity with with communities to um, to inform us, to work with us, to chart a strategy um, forward. I will say Yemen is one of the most complex operating environments in the world to deliver humanitarian assistance. And, and over the years, we've had to make incredibly difficult decisions, including for a, for a period in 2021, suspending um, some aspects of our humanitarian programming in the north because of interference and obstruction by the Houthis. We worked with, with partners um, on common operating principles. We worked with fellow donors um, and to no negotiate um, both, both directly through, through other donor partners and, and indirectly on a set of principles whereby we could continue operating um, in, in the north of Yemen. But it's, it's an incredibly difficult environment. Um, and our partners, uh, Yemenis, um, almost uh, to the person, um, operate at great personal risk to deliver assistance um, to the most vulnerable. And, and as Ambassador Hensel had mentioned, um, how the truce has been kind of instrumental to um, uh, aid delivery, um, and and now we are uh, essentially Yemen is essentially we're, we're trying to kind of renew the truce, right? But I really appreciate as a as a Yemeni, of course, U.S. stance in terms of its um, dual mandate in, uh, in intervening in Yemen. Uh, there's a political track and there's a humanitarian track, and and they don't hinge on each other. They the they're kind of independent, uh, and so the humanitarian assistance continues to be delivered uh, regardless of. Uh, of, of the political track. And so I, I wonder, um, from your uh, role at USAID, you've seen the truce and you've seen its, um, enab uh, its, its uh, enablement in terms of channeling aid. Um, what would you want to see the new kind of truce? Um, uh, are there parts of the truce, areas of the truce, uh, that you would want to have it um, expanded, uh, whether it's protecting humanitarian workers or um, just, I, I think, uh, Good to be to hear that from you. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, 
we, we do try to operate on, on somewhat independent tracks from the perspective of our, our humanitarian assistance is delivered in an impartial way on the basis of, of need, not on political affiliation. But we do operate in a political environment. And, um, and so I spend a great deal of time talking to the, the special, special envoy on, on matters of, of great importance for civilian outcomes in Yemen. I think one of the, the greatest boons to the truce, of course, has been um, the significant reduction in, um, in civilian death in Yemen. Um, and the other great boon has been the, the much freer flow of fuel um, in a country um, that is so dependent, uh, fuel and food, I should say, in a country that is so dependent on um, import of, of food, um, the, the fuel that helps move that food across the country, that helps um, fuel civilian uh, life and architecture is, is really quite quite critical. Of course, the, the cruel paradox for the people of Yemen is that this truce has also come at a time when we've seen global spikes in food and fuel prices. So even as um, the truce has reduced violence in Yemen, has allowed um, aspects of normal life to resume, uh, markets to, to resume in a way, um, as well as humanitarian assistance to flow more freely. The, the, the prices have, um, have risen dramatically and, and are creating um, even more deprivation than, than we'd seen in previous years. Well, yes, I, I think we all can agree that um, truce is, is really what Yemen needs and, and we hope, of course, to see the truce reinstated um, and hopefully it becoming a more of a durable um, one for any sort of, um, you know, for, for any sort of uh, practical or a, a reasonable political process to begin. Um, and so I, I think we want to hear uh, from Ambassador Hensel now in terms of um, the, the recent, ex the, the US-Saudi uh, relations being um, you know, under, under stress um, and how could that complicate the situation uh, in Yemen. And if you briefly kind of uh, alluded to it too in, in, in your opening remarks. But you see the, the, the Yemeni conflict is not necessarily only a, a, a Yemeni-Yemeni conflict. It has become morphed into a, a regional conflict. Uh, um, and of course, Iranian intervention in Yemen. And then you have this fr friction between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. And uh, of course, you have other countries that are kind of troubled by, um, by the Iranian um, intervention in, in uh, Syria and Lebanon uh, and now in, in Yemen. So, uh, how could this, you know, relationship between U.S. and Saudi, the complication here, um, could uh, you know undermine the entire Yemen file uh, in the region? Well, uh, thank you. Um, you know, I, I've been out of government for the past um, 13 months, so I, I don't really have any inside dope on what's going on with the U.S.-Saudi relationship. But it's it's from press reports, it it is definitely disturbing. I say that as a U.S. citizen, not as you know, uh, uh, you know, advocate for international peace or something. Um, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have a very important relationship that they both benefit from, and to the extent it's not working well, um, it, it harms both countries, um, and it'll, it'll have an effect on a, a lot of files. Um, Yemen being a very important one, um, you know, the. the the U.S. approach as just a day-to-day -day operational thing um, has been 
you know, to encourage the Saudis um, in their direct engagement with the Houthis uh, to support that, to try not to interfere with it, um, similarly to support the, the UN in, in the same way. Um, as I mentioned in my, in my remarks, in the end, you know, the Saudis are the ones with the direct interest there, not us. Yeah, uh, the U.S. isn't, the U.S. can't really come in on its own uh, and engage directly with uh, the Houthis and the uh, legitimate government and hope to achieve anything positive. We saw actually Secretary Kerry tried that uh, and it was uh, really a failure. Um, so what the U.S. ought to be doing is um, you know, supporting Saudi diplomatic efforts, uh, since we seem to have ruled out now um, uh, supporting um, Saudi <clears throat> pressure on, or coalition pressure on the Houthis, um, we should at least avoid uh, interfering with that because that will only lengthen the conflict. Uh, to the extent uh, the Houthis have, need not worry in any way about any kind of future pressure, they have no incentive to compromise. Um, yes. You know, I heard someone say this morning, there is no military solution, and that used to be one of my talking points when I was in government, in public at least. The sad fact is there is a military solution. The Houthis are in the process of imposing it. Right. As I mentioned, they've achieved um, most of their uh, goals. Uh, it still remains for them to, uh, by hook or by crook, absorb the rest of Yemen, and maybe they'll take their time at that, but I, I believe that's their goal. But um, um, military, uh, the military option worked for the Houthis, um, and uh, the United States and other Western countries um, uh, effectively took that away from the, the Saudi-led coalition, so this leaves us in the situation we're in now. I'm and anyway, so just to go back to your beginning of your question, I, I, I believe that this situation will unfortunately only cause the humanitarian problem to uh, go on indefinitely. Mm -hmm. uh, th thank you, Ambassador Hensel. I, I think this connects very well, is a good segue, um, to the, the funding of Yemen's humanitarian assistance. Um, and I think, um, you know, um, Ms. Uh, Charles, you've addressed this, uh, that there is some kind of uh, lack of, uh, or maybe a donor fatigue. But, you know, you mentioned that the U.S. is the largest uh, donor to Yemen's humanitarian appeal. and. You know, it's, it's a bit of kind of interesting because uh, regionally speaking, um, we've always been accustomed that the Saudis are the biggest kind of funders uh, when it comes to Yemen's economic development or humanitarian needs. But clearly there's something going on where um, regional countries, including Saudi Arabia, are rather um, interested in funding their um, humanitarian intervention through their own aid uh, arm uh, or centers. You know, there's... Um, uh, you know, Prince uh, Prince Khalid Center, I think, King Salman, King Salman Center, I'm sorry, King. King Salman Center. So it's kind of interesting to see um, the, 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 the pullback from multilateral engagements or multilateral assistance towards Yemen and, and, take, and, and instead taking this bilateral kind of stance. Is that something that worries you in terms of... Um, you know, global partners engaging uh, in, in Yemen uh, when it comes to the humanitarian funding? Yeah, I'd say there are two trends that, that concern me, and you, you mentioned donor fatigue, and I think it's playing out in different ways in different places. Um, in the United States, the conflict in Ukraine has had a um, 
in, in some ways, a, a bipartisan um, but positive tale, so to speak. Um, the supplemental funding for humanitarian assistance in Ukraine came with um, very generous support for um, assistance for the so-called global impacts of Ukraine's war uh, Russia's war in Ukraine on the rest of the world. And so actually a large reason why last year we were able to um, provide so generously for Ukraine, uh, for Yemen was because of um, supplemental funding that was passed in a bipartisan way by the US Congress um, that allowed us uh, again to, um, to respond to food insecurity in places like Yemen. In, among my European counterparts, we've seen an opposite effect of, the, of Russia's war in Ukraine, which is a lot of resources going into the humanitarian response in Ukraine and a smaller pie for the rest of the world. So we've seen European resources go down at the same time, even at a time of, of very high um, fuel prices, um, uh, very high revenue in the region, we've also seen, um, we've also seen regional contributions to, um, to the Yemen response go down. When I talk to my counterparts, um, in the region, some of it is, I think, a, a desire that we all have, which is to see more investments in the development space. Um, I think there is a, there can be a feeling of the humanitarian investments year after year after year after year um, feel a bit Sisyphean. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think there is a desire, again, among my counterparts in the region to, to make longer, longer term investments. We share that desire. Um, but right now, um, it, with the lack of kind of a durable um, peace in Yemen, uh, the humanitarian needs are, are incredibly urgent. Um, and the opportunities for those longer term in in investments and development are, are quite limited. Um, I believe Dr. Anthony, um, you, you, have, you have two questions uh, for the panelists. Uh, a comment. On asking your questions, uh, please do everyone a favor of not making a declaratory statement or a speech as to what speakers might have otherwise said that you would prefer them to address. Um, for policymakers, they're, they're, they're the following considerations that uh, keep them awake at night. Six of them are W questions. What needs to be done? Who needs to, be, to do it? When does it need to be done? Why does it need to be done? Where will we be if we do it? Where will we be if we don't do it? And sometimes, because if something's not broken, you're not supposed to try to fix it, the question of, of whether this or that or anything needs to be done. Those are vexing enough, but the most vexing of all begins with an H, namely how. You cannot answer this question yes or no. Uh, so put your questions this way, and that will allow the specialists to probe deeper in their response to your question, uh, again, for the educational mission that we all have. Um, Ambassador Hensel, in your opening remarks, you, you mentioned about the straitjacket that American policy finds itself in. It's not uh, open-ended as such, and we're not free to do exactly what would be objectively uh, determined or advocate as America's legitimate national interests, legitimate national needs, legitimate national concerns, legitimate national goals. The Saudi Arabian one, you articulated that very clearly and forcefully and effectively. 
But you also mentioned that uh, we're in a straitjacket because of Israel. It's not a neighbor of Yemen or Saudi Arabia as such. Uh, might you um, elaborate on that particular uh, point and the implications of it for our policies and our positions and our actions and our attitudes and at the end of the day, our effectiveness. And the other uh, question is, uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, I'm impressed by your saying that yes, there is a military solution. Uh, and if we could maybe even point to the map as to where are the Houthis in control, yeah. which parts of Yemen, how much of Yemen are they in control of? And correct me if I'm wrong, the prevailing and relevant United Nations Security Council resolution calls for the, a settlement only if the Houthis lay down their weapons. Now, who in the hell is going to lay down their weapons if they have gained more in the eating as the appetite tends to grow uh, than their initial demands happen to have been, and that they are in the driver's seat, the catbird seat, in control, have greater influence than almost most of the other parties concerned? Um, first question. Um, with regard to you on the Israeli component, Ambassador Hensel, and either of you on the second one, on how realistic, how naive, um, how ineffective uh, are the relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions? Must they be allowed to stand? Might they be amended? And if not, in either way, what are the implications for policies? Sure. Well, thank you, Dr. Anthony. Um, well, I, I mentioned Israel first because in, in my 36 years in, in the Foreign Service, I, I found that that was, you, you work back through uh, the policy justifications for much of what we do in the region, at the, at the back of it you often find that um, uh, the U.S. political classes are almost unanimous commitment to Israel. Um, mm requires us to do certain things in certain ways. So for instance, in the case of Yemen, no, Israel is not a neighbor. Um, some, some intersections are there. Uh, for instance, uh, we all know the Houthis, uh, the Houthis slogan includes uh, death to Israel and some other um, nasty expressions. Um, we've seen the Houthis publicly threaten to uh, fire missiles at Israel. Some doubt as to whether they can actually do it or not, but you know, at the rate they're going, one day they might be able to. But uh, no, those aren't direct considerations for Israel, really. But um, the Houthis are a huge uh, security concern, uh, national security concern over the long term for Saudi Arabia. And in turn, um, Saudi Arabia's role as uh, a moderating force in the region um, for the past generation has been of great benefit to Israel. The, the, Saudi, uh, the Israelis uh, certainly understand that uh, and they would never want that to go away. Um, similarly, um, you know, Iran's challenge uh, to make itself into a regional power is uh, a direct threat to Israel's position. Uh, Israel believes, and the U.S. establishment believes that Israel ought to be unchallenged at, at the strategic level and have a free hand to do what it uh, views it needs to do. 
I personally uh, don't uh, believe that's in the, in the long-term interest of the United States government, but it's a given. Uh, it's not something we can really change or and it's not worth debating here. Um, so uh, again, you know, you occasionally see both Republicans and Democrats in Congress saying, I'm, I'm sick of this Yemen situation. Why should the U.S. be implicated in the suffering of the, of the Yemeni people or this bloodshed? Uh, I want out. And then many of them eventually will realize, well, wait a second, that would uh, do serious harm to our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Well, then they might say, well, I'm sick and tired of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. I'm sick and tired of things like the Khashoggi incidents and the human rights uh, issues and these things. I want out. And then um, I suspect occasionally they, they get tapped on the so shoulder after a while by someone who says, well, wait a second. Remember what the, 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 Saudi, uh, the Saudi positions mean to Israel. Um, so again, that, when, when I, you call it a straitjacket, I think I called it a framework, but whatever you call it, um, not just on Yemen, on other policies too, of course, but on Yemen, U.S. policymakers aren't really free to just walk away from it or aren't really free to cut off uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia for the sake of, uh, of Yemen. Um, we're, we're, we're constrained by these other higher level policy um, positions. And then just quickly, and I, I won't try to monopolize things, you mentioned um, the UN Resolution 2216. Um, I said uh, certainly now, and probably for a long time, it's not realistic to expect the kind of coalition government that's envisioned in 2216. On the other hand, I, I would strongly recommend against um, reopening 2216. In other words, um, um, you know, proposing a new resolution to succeed it because 2216 um, recognizes uh, the legitimate gov government of Yemen. Uh, if that were thrown open to debate uh, in the UN, I don't know how the debate would come out in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, um, 2216 um, essentially uh, legitimizes the, uh, the Saudi-led coalition's role um, and again, I think in, in pursuit of U.S. Uh, interests in the region, to have that uh, undermined by some new resolution well, wouldn't be helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we have a lot of questions from the audience, so truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, you know, Ms. Ms. Charles, you've mentioned um, a number of, of issues that happened last year with the Houthi uh, interference in aid delivery and how that impacted uh, you know, uh, many, many local organizations and, and funders. And so there was a brief suspension of aid uh, because of Houthi interference. Um, but it seemed that um, this year, even during the truce, um, there were a higher number of incidents targeting humanitarian workers uh, just in the first six months of 2021 uh, compared to the uh, 2022 compared to, tw to the entire year of 2021. So, um, so the, the, one of the audiences actually have asked as well if you, if you could address this with, with, uh, with this comment, um, is, is that there has been uh, you know, ongoing detention of uh, local USAID, uh, former USAID uh, employees, locally staffed uh, embassies in Yemen. And you know, this has continued to be an issue. Um, 
And so essentially I have really two questions. If, if you have uh, any thoughts about what has changed this year in terms of um, measures and safeguarding uh, aid going into Yemen from not being captured by the, by the Houthis. And um, really the, the, the second question is, um, you know, 15. what kind of, uh, you know, the, the opposing view about sending aid to Yemen and especially in areas controlled by, uh, by the Houthis and very quickly referencing, I'd like to ref refer to this map. Now, the Houthis, oh, sorry, thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. So the, oh, this, is, this is good. Thank you. So essentially, the Houthis are in control of Yemen's um, northern, western side. Uh, this is mountainous areas that are heavily populated, and a lot of the humanitarian needs are in in this quadrant right here. Of course, there are um, communities, coastal communities, who are uh, really impoverished communities in the coastal region of of Yemen, uh, and of course, in Taiz. Uh, but again, millions and millions of people live in Houthi-controlled areas, and this is where the uh, greatest humanitarian needs is, and this is where incidences of humanitarian aid uh, being captured by the Houthis seized, and uh, local staff of humanitarian organizations being targeted. Um, and so, if you have a comment of what has changed, really, um, since the resumption of aid, and, and what kind of measures and safeguards that have been implemented. So, um I, I wish it was um, it was just a clean story of Houthi obstruction. I think we we have seen um, we have seen a great deal um, not just over the past year but over the past few years of, of Houthi um, Houthi obstruction targeting of aid workers. I think one um, one area that we've um, been quite deliberate in working on is. Um, unity within the NGO, the UN, um, and the donor community about um, principles and thresholds, you know, um, uh, not delivering assistance if the organizations can't do the targeting of assistance themselves, not allowing the Houthis to direct where assistance um, can and cannot go. And I, I do think that unity among the community has been helpful in, in holding the line because, you know, frankly, the, the Houthis um, do want to see assistance flow to people that are under their, their area of control. When I say it's not as simple as Houthi obstruction, unfortunately, a number of those incidents um, over the past year have actually been in areas not controlled by, by Houthis as well. We've seen a deterioration um, in the in the security situation um, in the south and areas under um, under the, the government's control and a, and a breakdown in some of the systems that um, allowed for negotiating things like like checkpoints um, in the south as well. So it's not it's not such a clean story of, of just an issue um, in areas under Houthi Houthi control. I do I do want to just address one thing that Ambassador Hensel said because I, I I'm sure this wasn't the the intent to kind of make Israel the the boogeyman of, of U.S. Um, foreign policy in this space and four years of um, 
high-level meetings at the White House under the Obama administration when I was on the National Security Council staff, the same in the last two years of this administration. Um, Israel policy has never been at the center of our, of our policy in Yemen, which is not to say there aren't very complicated um, regional dynamics, but um, I don't think it's the, the animating force behind where the U.S. has, has ended up over the years in terms of um, its, its policy towards, towards Yemen, per se. Well, if I could say, I, 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 I didn't say that it's uh, at the center of uh, Yemen policy, uh, but I did say it is at the center of our policy in the region. And that's my point. Uh, we have a, uh, certain regional commitments that um, stem from our commitment to Israel's maintaining Israel's position or advancing it. And uh, because of those, that commitment, there are other commitments that flow from it. And one of those is our commitment to um, uh, opposing Iran's expansion and maybe even rolling it back. Um, in part, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is driven um, by our concern for Israel's interests because, again, of Saudi Arabia's um, moderating um, influence on the region. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for both of you. I, I think, uh, as, as uh, Mr. Charles have noted, it's, um, it's really, first, it's very complicated to operate in, in Yemen. And, and yes, uh, there were incidences outside of the Houthi-controlled areas, um, in government-controlled areas, and, and frankly, in areas that are just, um, that have a void, um, kind of yeah. abs absent of any, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, a structured governance. Um, and so these are in areas in, tribal areas in, in Shabwa uh, and in Al-Jawf. But, um, you know, overall, I, I, I think that um, you, you've raised an important point about um, Israel and the regional dynamics of Yemen's war. Um, Yemen's war is not a new war anymore. It's, it's an eight years war. Um, it has morphed into, um, into a lot of, um, it, it kind of involved many other um, <clears throat> regional and, and global countries, and, and Russia now is, is really somewhat involved. So uh, Iran's involvement in, in Ukraine, uh, although um, you know it's indirect, but now I guess it might be direct with its uh, supplies of its own drones um, in, in Ukraine's conflict. Um, this has complicated the dynamics a little bit, and I, I have a question from the um, from the audience that specifically addresses this issue, where you have um, a now a, an Iranian involvement uh, in Ukraine, um, and this has kind of put an end to the J JCPOA, really. And I mean, the Western effort to revive the JCPOA is gone, and and that complicates, of course, the Yemen file, uh, because as uh, Ambassador Hensel, you mentioned that the Yemen uh, file for Iran is, is kind of an important one. Uh, and that kind of, uh, you know, complicates various issues. So I, I have this question for you. Um, if you if you would like with commenting or, uh, on, on this uh, Gulf-Russian, uh, the question um, refers, refers to it as a Gulf-Russian rapprochement. Um, but I guess it's because of the oil uh, and the OPEC meeting. But now, if you have any comments about Russia's dynamics, and, and uh, do you expect them playing a, a bigger role now in the Middle East, given the strained U.S.-Saudi relations, and and possibly, um, you know, Russia playing maybe uh, a, a bigger role? And this, the second question is actually it's a twofold: is for Colonel uh, De Roche. You know, you've uh, you've seen Iran, of course, supplying uh, you know weapons to Russia. Does this any way complicate or limits the, their supply of weapons to the Houthis? 
uh, could that undermine uh, the supply? Cool. So we'll begin with, uh, ma maybe you, you want to tackle this one since you just... I'll, do, yeah, I'll, do, uh, I'll yeah, do the drone one first. Yeah. So there, there is no indication that um, the uh, Iranian provision of weapons to Russia for use in warfare against civilian infrastructure in Ukraine has impacted uh, the uh, ability of Iran to domestically produce drones or to export drones to the Houthis or to any of their other proxies. Uh, there, there is no real... Um, bottleneck technology. Uh, the motors, as I said earlier, are basically model airplane motors. Um, the electronic guidance is similar to what you find in a cell phone uh, or a commercial GPS. They can be easily acquired or manufactured from components that can be um, gotten from civilian. The one limiting factor that we're starting to see is the ability of uh, cameras, uh, automatic cameras uh, mounted on gimbals. Um, and what we found is that the ones recovered in the battlefield in Ukraine are um, uh, produced by Canadian manufacturer, and so um, and we've seen that the uh, reliance of the Shahid 136 or Giran, if the Russians fire it, um, that they are just fire. They can only be fired like artillery rounds. They can't be controlled because of the inability to put a camera on them. They're they're aimed at fixed targets. So once again, proving that our real national security threat uh, is Canada. Um, if Justin Bieber did not convince you, this should. <laughs> Ambassador Hensel, about uh, the, the first part of the question about Russia's possible um, involvement and growing role in the Middle East uh, in light of a strained uh, U.S.-Saudi relation. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm placed to address Russia's role in the region, uh, but certainly on Yemen, I can say that um, uh, surprisingly, up until, well, up until when I left, uh, the Russians were playing a, a positive role, or at least trying not to be negative uh, on Yemen. They were a co-sponsor of, of Resolution 2216, and like us, they were in favor of maintaining it and not opening it up again and, and inviting changes. Um, I don't, the Russian ambassador used to play a positive role and cooperated with me. I, I don't know how that's, how that's uh, changed since um, the Russian uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. Also, you, you mentioned Iran briefly. Um, I, maybe just to expand a little bit on what I said in my remarks. Um, Iran's role in, in Yemen is, uh, for Iran, uh, a, a very cheap and very effective way to, um, to drain Saudi Arabia of, of strength and credibility around the world. Um, the Iranians don't have to spend very much money to provide the weapons they do provide. As, as the colonel mentioned, it's pretty basic stuff, but it's effective. Um, so because of that, I'm afraid that uh, if, uh, if there are discussions about Yemen between the U.S. and Iran or between the Saudis and Iran, uh, Yemen is one of the last cards that the Iranians would be willing to compromise on. Thank you very much, Ambassador Hensel. Um, so we, we did receive a lot of questions, and I apologize for not being able to go over them, all of them. Uh, they're very interesting questions. Uh, but I think uh, one of the questions that I think we, we need to maybe possibly end with, we still have one minute left, um, is about the global food um, insecurity. 
And so uh, there is a, a, a very much most developing countries import food from, from the international markets, especially least developed countries. And um, it seems that Yemen will continue, uh, will require further assistance in the next uh, years ahead. And the U.S. Um, has been, uh, you know, generous with, with providing with all the um, food assistance. Um, but I think I'd like to give Ms. Charles the opportunity really to, um, you know, highlight or maybe voice her advocacy to the American people. Why is it necessary um, to continue support um, USAID's mission uh, uh, in, in, in the world, and specifically in Yemen? Why is it that the U.S. should continue funding uh, all these, um, you know, uh, food needs, despite of growing inflation here in the U.S. as well, and, and everyone is kind of impacted at different levels, uh, of course. So I'll give it to you. Yeah, <clears throat> I'll, um, thank you for that that opportunity. I think uh, we have a very strong bipartisan tradition in the United States of supporting humanitarian assistance overseas, and we've seen that. I, I mentioned before we've seen that in spades, really, in the last few few months, as the U.S. Congress has seen um, after two years of COVID-related supply chain disruptions, um, and now the confluence of Russia's war in Ukraine, what that's done for food exports from, from the Black Sea, um, and now moves in order, uh, in order to control supply of, of oil and what's that, what that's done to fuel prices, how that's impacting the most vulnerable, the most poor in places like Yemen, in places like Somalia, but also places like Lebanon, Egypt, Tunisia, um, Algeria, who are heavily dependent on food imports and heavily price dependent, um, even more so than that dependence on, on food imports. Um, and and the, USP, the American people, the US Congress, have been incredibly generous. Um, just to, to give a little flavor of why we put so much emphasis on on food assistance, in particular in a place like Yemen, on on supplemental feeding. So this is the this is the highly fortified nutritional products, um, usually made from from peanuts, um, that support the most malnourished children, um, children under five who are suffering from um, the combined impacts of of disease and lack of food. That disease coming in part because of breakdown in municipal water systems in places like Thais. Um, that malnutrition at the age of uh, age of 18 months, two years, three years, four years old. I've been to these supplemental feeding programs where you see four-year-olds who look like 18-month-olds. These interventions they work, and they can work quite quickly to restore um, restore children from really being at death's door um, to uh, to thriving with with targeted um, targeted support from, from ready-to-eat food products, um, from nutritional and health, health support. But if it's not treated, those impacts stay with children um, for a generation. Um, this impacts their brain development, their ability to, to learn and grow much later in life. And so um, it's why we prioritize, why the American people should and can prioritize in these moments when Yemen is suffering from this conflict. And this really is an investment in Yemen's, in Yemen's future for a time when Yemen um, is experiencing peace. Um, and those children um, are, are well placed to help help rebuild um, and restore uh, Yemen's greatness. Well, thank you so much. Um, 
Ms. Charles. Uh, it's truly a pleasure, and, I, and I'd like to ask if uh, my colleague, uh, do you have any any um, oh. any thoughts? If well, you want to add anything, Ms. Charles's work is is vital, and uh, uh, I, I would just add one thing that hasn't been mentioned. So, 30 there, there's three staples food in the world, and if you have a food crisis, you have political instability. You can track food prices in the, for example, the Arab Spring, the revolutions in the Arab world. So, there's three staples. The first is wheat. 30 percent of that is off the market because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and then the knock-on effect because Ukraine is also a producer of fertilizers. So that's a problem. The second problem, which which we haven't mentioned, is the second vital commodity is rice. 25% of the world's rice product transits the Bab el-Mandeb. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be impounded the way the wheat is, but it, it does complicate the situation and raise prices at the worst time. So that's a key element of Yemeni's stability that has to be factored into regional and indeed global stability is, is rice transiting the Bab el-Mandeb. The third commodity is corn, we call it maize, um, which uh, unfortunately because of misguided U.S policies to convert it into ethanol, um, uh, you know, is not able to really have a, a, an ameliorating impact on the global food. And I thought that the fiasco of the 2016 Democratic primary caucus in Iowa and then the fact that you have a president who lost the Iowa caucus would lead to reform to say, okay, let's push Iowa off the start of the political thing and then we would, as soon as night follows day, see a rationalization, you don't have to nod either way, we'd see a rationalization of dysfunctional subsidies to convert corn, take it off the world food market and convert it into ethanol, which is just a loss, loss, loss for everybody except farmers in Iowa and similarly situated states. So my appeal is to uh, please look at rice and corn. Uh, and uh, you know, if, uh, this hunger situation is a real thing and it will lead to political instability and it's much bigger than Yemen, although Yemen is one of the worst cases. Ladies and gentlemen, as the keeper of the clock here, um, I'd love this to go on more, but uh, unfortunately we can't. But um, Ms. Charles, I just want to express our profound thanks and gratitude for what you do every day. Um, you are saving lives, you are helping humanity, and you know, may, may your tribe increase, as Dr. Anthony always reminds me. Um, we wish you the best, and we're here to support you, and I'm sure everyone in this room would be more than happy to write letters to members of Congress to, to make sure that you get what you need. Um, but bless you what you do in your work. David, thank you. Ambassador, we appreciate you coming. Um, we look forward to having you stay around. And of course, our wonderful moderator from, uh, from the Republic of Yemen, uh, Abdul Rahman, we thank you again. Um, you've put your heart and soul, and you've obviously really, really thought through this session to make it very impactful. Yes, there's there's been a little bit of Tabasco, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, we, we appreciate. Um, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, we will take a 15-minute break. Um, I know it said 10 minutes. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, Thank you very much.